There's a certain truth, Bianca, that we don't like to tell young readers, but that we need to, I think. And that is that not only does sorrow happen, not only does fright happen and anger and frustration to the young, but that having survived it once and having learned that you can survive it doesn't mean that it's never going to happen again. The cycle of emotions is permanent. Hey everyone, I'm Bianca Schultz from the Children's Book Review, and this is the Growing Readers Podcast. Today's guest is the incredible Gregory Maguire. He's one of the greatest writers of our time. He's the author of the incredibly popular books in the Wicked Years series, including Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, which inspired the musical that you all know. He's also the author of several books for children, including What the Dickens, a New York Times bestseller, and Egg and Spoon, a New York Times book review notable children's book of the year. Gregory has stopped by the podcast today to talk about his latest novel, which is one of my favorite books I've read in a long time, Cress, Watercress. But before we jump right in, let me read you the synopsis. Did a fox get Papa? Cress Watercress is a rabbit. Home means a warren on the riverbank with Mama and Papa and Baby Kip. Meals at dawn and dusk and honey ginger tea to help the baby with his breathing. When Papa doesn't return from a nocturnal honey gathering expedition, Mama assumes the worst. After all, it's a dangerous world for a rabbit. Though Cress begs to stay, what if Papa comes home and doesn't know where they've gone? Mama moves the family to the basement apartment of the Broken Arms, a run-down apartment tree with a menacing owl landlord, a nosy mouse super, a rowdy family of squirrels, and a pair of songbirds who broadcast everybody's business. Could a dead tree full of annoying neighbors, and no Papa, ever be home? With his trademark wit, whimsy, and wisdom, Gregory Maguire, best-selling author of Wicked, tells a tale of growing up and moving on in the tradition of The Wind in the Willows and Stuart Little. Hello, Gregory Maguire. Welcome to the Growing Readers Podcast. Hello, Bianca. It's so nice to meet you this way. Yeah, so we're together today to talk about your brand new novel for kids, Cress Watercress. But it's impossible not to kick off by mentioning your adult novel, Wicked, which became, of course, a smash hit Broadway musical. So we, we recently actually chatted with your real life Glinda Kristen Chenoweth here on the podcast about her joyful new picture book. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to the movie version with the talented Ariana Grande starring as Glinda. So I just want to know what are your feelings about all of the success that your story, Wicked, has found. I have to admit, Bianca, that uh, it continues to take me for a ride even 27 years after the book was first published. The book did um, very well on its own, 
before the Broadway carousel came along to fling it to an even greater audience. But ever since then, it's become a whole universe. They talk about you know, Middle Earth and, and the, the Marvel universe. And it seems to me that there's a wicked universe that obviously derives from The Wizard of Oz, but is actually almost its own thing at this point. And I feel as any creative deity might do, very proud and a little nervous to make sure my child doesn't, you know, fall off the balance. I'm sure. So while many of your fans know you from writing Wicked, the first time that I actually read one of your books was in 2008, and I had just begun working as a children's bookseller in Washington, D.C., and one of my co-workers put What the Dickens, the story of a rogue tooth fairy into my hands, and you need to know that 14 years later, I still have that exact copy. I just love that story. <laughs> oh, boy. Am I, does that make me happy? Although I would probably be happier if you had accidentally left it on the metro and had to go buy a second copy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well, so here's something I'm interested to hear about. Some authors write for adults. Some prefer to write for kids. And fewer writers create stories for both adults and kids. And now since you fall into that third category, I'd love to know what inspires and motivates you to write the stories you create for kids. Well, I think that probably that answer comes in, uh, in two levels. One is that uh, if I have been working on a very dense and somewhat intellectual story for adults, which is to say my motivations are intellectual, although I don't, I hope it doesn't come over as a, as a dry or academic novel, then to write for children is in a way to cleanse the palate um, of my own mind. It's a way to restore me to first principles. What is storytelling actually about? It is about engaging the reader quickly with honor and with trustworthiness, amusing them, giving them something to chew over and leaving them happy to have spent time in your presence in the pages of your book. This is true for adult readers, of course, too, but adult readers are a little more tolerant of you know, lingering through passages that they might find boring or that they don't really understand. With a child reader, there is no such lingering. If something isn't working, zoop on that particular page, then the book goes onto the table or under the bed and the child goes out of the room and onto the next thing. That is very challenging and also consoling for a writer because if you can write for children, you can do just about anything. <laughs> so let's talk about Cress Watercress, which honestly reads like a classic story, but it's still really, it's so fresh. And it tackles loss, grief, moving to a new home, finding community, but all of that's delivered with such tremendous wit and wisdom. And so I really want to know the why and the how did this story spill out of your mind? <laughs> I, ha I have to say that about 15 years ago, I was taking my kids to visit a friend in Geneva, Switzerland. We had driven up from France. And when we got there, uh, my friend said, oh, our kids have a rabbit in the hutch in the backyard. My kids had never seen a live rabbit before or even, you know, a dead one. But they were about to <laughs> because they were so excited about this that they thundered out of the car, paced down the alley, curved around the corner of the building and and crashed up to the rabbit hutch to pet and love and see this beautiful creature who promptly fell over dead with oh, shock no. and, and terror. So I think in a way, 
crest watercrest, subliminally anyway, is my way of bringing the lost back to life and giving that poor rabbit another chance at immortality, uh, in this case, as one of the rabbits in my story. All right. Well, I, I have a question lined up from a child reader, and it's sort of, you kind of answered this a little bit, but you may be able to elaborate a little more. Hi, I'm Eddie, and I'm wondering, why did you use forest creatures as your main characters? So I guess, you know, she's curious about why forest animals, and you kind of it sort of mentioned why a rabbit maybe became the main character. But so what is it about forest creatures that you think lend themselves really well, Cress, Watercress's story and plot? I think in the main, uh, Bianca, most of us don't live in the woodlands anymore or near them. Of course, some people live on the outback and some people live in the farms and some people live on the edges of the suburbs. But most of us proportionally live in cities and in uh, suburban neighborhoods where there isn't a whole lot of wildlife activity to be spotted. Once in a while, there's a coyote or a skunk or a raccoon, always squirrels, sometimes chipmunks, but not too much. So I think there is an allure to the notion of a population that is adjacent to us, but just out of sight. That is the population of animals who come out at night and who have Congress and who have battles and who have struggles for food and for dominance and for safety and for life itself. And with any luck, survive until the next day. The notion of a secondary world that is cheek by jowl to ours, well, in 100 years ago or so, or more, I suppose, 130, 40, people, some people still believe in fairies as if there were there was a fairy world out under the bushes and, and in the shrubs and in the parks and woodlands. I think an animal world has sort of replaced the idea of a fairy world, but it's no less vigorous and it's no less magic either if the animals can talk. Yeah. And I feel like there's that when your story is tackling loss and grief and just managing through a difficult situation, I feel like by exploring that story through animals, it takes the child reader and the adult readers just that one step back so that they can process it from a different place. Do you agree with that? Oh, well, I do agree with that. And as a proof of that, you think about the kind of suffering that small children put their stuffed animals through yeah. <laughs> as, as a way, in a way of standing aside from the suffering they would not like to have to endure themselves. You know, punishing teddy bears by making them sit in the corner or throwing dolls on the floor if they've been badly behaved. All kids do that and animals stand in for their alter egos in a sense. And it also happens in their stories. Wilbur and Charlotte are not just a pig and a spider. They are a young person and a wiser, older person. And we all see that in Wilbur and Charlotte. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so just last week, I had the pleasure of talking to illustrator David Litchfield, who created the incredible artwork for Crest Watercress. And we talked about how your story reminded him and me so much of Wind in the Willows. We also talked quite a bit about Lady Agatha Cabbage as a highlight among a cast of pretty unique characters. So is Lady Agatha Cabbage a highlight for you too? 
Oh, oh, Lady Cabbage. I should explain to your readers who haven't yet read the book that Lady Cabbage is a skunk. And I mean that in the animal sense, as well as perhaps in the metaphoric sense. Uh, she's a real stinker and she's a skunk. Uh, she has a white stripe down her back and she carries a certain perfume around with her, which she can dispense at will if you get on her wrong side. She is full of airs and pretensions, like a lot of people that in my childhood we would have called snobby. And she also takes a lot of privileges. She thinks that she lives by slightly different rules than Oi Poloi, who uh, grovel under her feet. And it's so fun to write a slightly nasty individual. Now, she's not a complete villain. Nobody in the world is a complete villain, but she does have her head screwed on the wrong way. And uh, she's a little too enamored of her own aroma, I think. So <laughs> I just I just loved writing Lady Agatha Cabbage. And there is usually somebody like a Lady Agatha Cabbage in all of my books, one way or the other. Somebody that it's fun to, it's fun to make a little gentle fun of, but not not to dismiss entirely because they have their issues too. One kind of is curious, how did Lady Agatha Cabbage get to be so full of pretensions? And what is it that she really needs? And we learn a little bit about that as the book goes on. Yes. All right. Well, I want to talk about another character that I identify with, and that's Mama. <laughs> mm -hmm. As an adult, she isn't allowed to crumble under the pressure and she has to hold everything together for her kids but she comes off a little crabby at times but all she really wants is the best for her children I would love for you to share some thoughts on her character development and what she brings to the story well I have to ask you first Bianca if that character um Bianca excuse me if that character appeals to you I have to ask you have you ever known a mother figure like that <laughs> 100%. Like I, I totally identify with her. <laughs> yes. I, I identify with her in my own parents and I identify with her in myself as I am a parent too, occasionally up against it. And even if my, my surface manner is irritable or has just had it, is fed up, still the underlying impulse is always to try to do what's best for the other people in my life. Uh, I don't always manage, but I always try. So she is in a way, uh, a kind of amalgam of every good mother and many, many good teachers and librarians and other adults in our lives who has put our, our needs above their own. And that's a tiring thing to do. So no wonder she gets cranky from time to time. Yeah. Well, before we move on from the characters, I feel like since we talked about Lady Agatha Cabbage and we've talked about Mama, I mean, do you want to share a little bit about the main star, Cress? Yes. Well, Cress is a, a young rabbit. She has a baby brother named Kip who struggles with asthma. So his needs are always a little bit more dominant than hers in the family. And at the beginning of the story, Cress is very sad because with the disappearance of Papa Rabbit, the family has had to make the difficult choice of moving out of their private home, their private rabbit warren with its pantries and its separate bedrooms and take up new lodgings in an apartment tree, which for them is a bit of a down market move. But it's necessary because Mama Rabbit can't see to procuring the, the food and supplies the family needs uh, without having another adult 
at home to mind the kids and make sure the baby doesn't get sick while she's gone. So living in an apartment will help out by having neighbors all around who can cast a kindly eye upon the family when mama goes out to, uh, to her chores and to collect her food. Cress is therefore an older child to her baby brother, but she's not very old. Indeed, when she sees the moon on their on their trip to their new lodgings, she actually can't even remember whether she's ever seen the moon before. Her mother says she has, but she doesn't remember it. So in a way, she's a very young child. And in another way, because Rabbit's lives are short, she's almost a teenager, <laughs> which is which is a kind of a description of childhood. We, until we get to be adult, we are both the little child we always were, and we're the teenager grappling with the kind of rusty apparatus of what it's going to mean to be a grown-up and have to make our own decisions for ourselves. Yes, and there's also that element of when you do go through a difficult experience, often there is an extra weight on your shoulders that almost pushes you to sort of make that step closer to adulthood too. That can be the downfall of difficult um, situations. And I feel like Crest just is such a courageous, determined character that just shows that development so beautifully. Well, yes, I hope so. And, And yet at the same time, when you survive a difficult moment, as Cress does at a certain point, well, she survives a number of them, but at a certain point, she comes face to face with the reality of her grief. And she is speaking somewhat analytically and, uh, and with intelligence to her mother, but she crawls up in her mother's lap and puts her arms around her mother's neck. So she is both a small child and a struggling adolescent at the same time. That's how I think most of us feel most of the time. But Cress being a rabbit can actually demonstrate both of those feelings in the same page. And frankly, that's one of my favorite pages in the book is when Mama consoles Cress on a moonless night. Yeah, I loved that moment too. So something else I spoke to David Litchfield about is how his artwork glows. Every dark moment in the story is counted by a brighter, cheerful, often funny moment. And your words and David's art just dance their way through the story with such synergy. And I would just love for you to tell me about this pairing with David, how it came to be and what you thought when you saw the finished book. To be perfectly blunt, when I wrote the book, I had an American artist in mind for uh, the illustrator. Of course, it's not the author's choice or decision, but I've been around the block long enough that my opinion at least gets listened to. And I made a proposal to my editor who said, we admire the work of the person you are proposing very, very much, but we don't think it's right for this book we're going to make a few proposals ourselves and we would like your opinion on them. My editor then sent me five portfolios of five different artists that they were considering. And one of them was David Litchfield's. I looked at his work and to be, you know, again, to be blunt, I didn't like every inch of every piece, but there were huge patches of things that I really loved and that really stood out to me and that I thought were, were sufficiently magical. And so I said to her, I like the David Litchfield who does 
this one of a, of a bear playing a piano in the woods and does that one. And I, I highlighted those effects that I thought were particularly translucent and moving to me. Funny, uh, individual, quirky, unique, and unlike anything else. So I have a feeling the editor said, all right, we'll go with that. And when the editor and art director got in touch with David, I have a feeling they they gave a work order in to say, we like work that emulates this kind of thing that you can do so well. That will that kind of thing will work very well for this book. And I think he followed suit. Now I haven't talked to him about that. And maybe they never gave him any instructions at all. Maybe it was only the story that gave him the instruction. But the work came in and almost every single piece, I think, could not be improved. My description for how it sits on my eye, Bianca, is it's as if someone took a stained glass window from a European church and put it in the Cuisinart and pressed it on light pulse. And then the shards of glass, uh, not, not crumbled into sand, but still with large chunks of color were tipped out onto the page because the whole book has the sense of light shining through it. I mean that, I hope through the words, but especially through the art. That's what David Litchfield can do. And that's what he has done. Yes. Oh my gosh. That description was fantastic. I could totally see that happening in the blend and pouring out. And I, I completely agree with you. So I mentioned before a comparison of Crest Watercrest to Wind in the Willows. And it actually has me wondering which books from your childhood do you most remember reading? You know, this is a really great question. And I'm inclined to try to answer it in terms of what animal fables and stories do I remember reading? Because I certainly read a number of them. But among my most favorite books, I don't know that animal fables would really be a characteristic that would organize them in my head. I did love any story that had to do with magic. But but, but by that, I'm talking more about chapter books, like Crest Watercrest. From books of an earlier age, I confess to you, Bianca, that I have very few memories of picture books from when I was of picture book age. I have memories of picture books from when my younger brothers and sisters were of picture book age and I would read to them. And I loved them. I loved Maurice Sendak. I loved Babar. Uh, I loved Madeline. All those books with a lot of color and big pages, some of which were filled with animals and some were not. But for myself, for instance, the Beatrix Potter books, You would think they might have been a big influence on me, but I didn't really ever see those until I was probably in my early teens. So I I lived a young life without knowing about Peter Rabbit or Mrs. Tiggy Winkle or or some of the others. That's a, a sore lapse in my childhood education, I'm afraid. Well, here's a question I ask everyone. They say you need to be a reader first to be a writer. So was there a pivotal moment in which you considered yourself a reader? Oh, yes. <laughs> I loved I love to read. Actually, I'm, I'm told and I sort of remember being able to start picking out letters in the newspaper, you know, looking on a on a newspaper page and trying to find the O's and then trying to find the A's and then, you know, sort of moving through the alphabet and teaching myself to identify letters even before I got to kindergarten and was taught them. But that being said, I do remember a night when I was probably in about first grade when I had taken a book out of the library. We were great library attendees. And I, it was a, 
a short book with big print, but it wasn't a picture book. There were, there were pictures on every page, but it was a slightly longer novel. Maybe now you'd say it was for second or third grade, but I was reading it in first grade and I got to about halfway through and I got tired and I suddenly was filled with joy because I knew I could put the book down flat open onto the two pages where I was on the, on the floor next to my bed. And in the morning I could wake up and start reading again. And that meant I was a grown up because that's what grown ups did. Uh. They, didn't, they didn't finish books all at one reading like little kids did. They had to wait and read them in sequence. That moment was a moment of great triumph for me and a real moment of happiness in my childhood when I realized it. Yeah, that's such a fantastic memory. I actually, I don't remember ever um, falling asleep reading. I wonder if that's just because <laughs> I would fall asleep with the book on my face. I don't know. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> well, something else I love learning about is the day-to-day practices of writers. And so I'm wondering, do you have any writing rituals that you tend to each day? When I am writing the first draft of a new book, there are a couple of things I expressly tried to do as a way to keep the channels open, the channels to my subconscious particularly, which is, I think, where most art is is originated and is made. Uh, One thing that I try to do is walk a little bit every day. Another thing that I do is uh, resist listening to music while I'm writing because I have a musical ear. And if there's music on in the background, Part of me is trying to eavesdrop on the music, (laughs) you know, and it it distracts me. Some people can write to music and I admire them and applaud them, but I, but I can't because for me, music is another language. It's a little bit like going into a coffee shop and wanting to have a conversation with your friend, but people at the booth next door are about to get divorced and are arguing really loudly and you can't help but wanting to hear what the problem is. <laughs> That's what music does to me. So I don't, I don't put music on when I'm writing. The other thing that I do that I will say is that if I get stuck, and let's face it, who doesn't? If I get stuck, sometimes all it takes to dislodge me is to go to my library where I have an ample collection of books of poetry. Now, I don't understand poetry a lot of the time, but I love to read it anyway because... It's aggressive and athletic use of language sometimes represses my restart button and helps me think about things in a new way. That's what poetry does in general. But I think reading poetry is really good for the person writing stories. It helps you realize you have to continue to surprise yourself as a writer, or you're never going to be able to surprise the reader. So I, I know a lot of writers, you know, if they're not in the middle of a project or they're between projects, they um, will keep a journal. Is keeping a journal something that you do? Keeping a journal is something that I do. It's not a daily journal anymore. Uh, and even when it was a daily journal, it wasn't terribly daily. Uh, but I have been keeping a journal for more than half a century. It kind of makes me quake in my boots too. <laughs> be able to say that sentence, honestly. I, I read the, the novel Harriet the Spy when I was in about sixth grade. Harriet keeps a journal. She calls it a spy notebook. And she writes down everything she learns and hears from her friends and neighbors and people she sees on the street. Much like that spying I was talking about, the you know, listening to the people arguing over a divorce at the next booth. Harriet does that kind of thing. And that's where I learned that trick. I, I love the book Harriet the Spy. I love that she wanted to be a writer. And I thought, I want to be a writer too. I should keep a journal. And I started. Originally, it was called a spy notebook. But here it is 57 years later. And 
well, not quite 57, 54 years later, I guess. And I am still keeping it. Now I write it on the computer and I don't do it every day. Sometimes I might not do it for three or four or five weeks in a row, but sometimes I'll do it every day for a few days if something is going on that I really need to process or I really want to remember. And I really endorse that. Not so much because I think writing a journal makes you better, but keeping in shape as a writer, keeping your eye in shape to look and notice, keeping your mind in shape to use language to express what it is that you observe is just like, I think, playing scales every day if you're a concert pianist or stretching every day if you're a ballet dancer or a long distance runner. You need to keep in shape. And for a writer, keeping in shape, even when you're not writing a new book, can be done by keeping a journal. That's great advice. So since you brought up a literary character, Harriet the Spy, here's kind of a random and fun question. If you had to pick two literary characters to be your parents, (laughs) who would you pick? My goodness. Ah, well, let's see. I suppose it depends on whether I wanted my parents to yell at me for not living up to their grand (laughs) talents and accomplishments or whether I'd like to pick, uh, I I can like design my chromosomes backwards and think, where did I come from in terms of literary antecedents? I think I will choose to think of the latter because it might be kind of daunting to have Virginia Woolf as your mother. We should all be so lucky, but she didn't have any children, so I'll let her off the hook. Um, My literary father, in some ways, might have been T.H. White, who wrote The Once and Future King. Uh, That's the story that inspired The Sword and the Stone, which was a Disney movie about Merlin and the young King Arthur. And it also inspired the, the, the movie Camelot and the musical Camelot. The Sword and the Stone I loved and, and The Once and Future King by T.H. White, I loved because it was taking the story of T.H. White, of, of Merlin and Arthur, and telling it again as if it had never been told before, which is sort of like what I did with Wicked. So he would be my literary father. And my literary mother might be a lesser known writer, but somebody to whom I was really devoted as a child and as an adult, a writer named Jane Langton. She wrote murder mysteries for adults. She also wrote fantastic children's books, including one called The Diamond in the Window, which is set in a house in Concord, Massachusetts. Uh, I read it when I was about 10 and it's a fantasy. It's a treasure hunt. It's a story about lost relatives and missing jewels and a house that's about to be foreclosed upon. But it's also a reflection on the transcendentalist impulse, which began to be expressed in Concord, Massachusetts, about almost 200 years ago. Well, she's a wonderful writer, and I loved her book so much that I wrote to her eventually, and I met her eventually. And why do you think I live in Concord, Massachusetts right now? Because her story was so persuasive that I thought, I want to be where the action is. And so that's why I've been in Concord for 25 years. And that's why I've raised my family here. Oh my gosh. I would never have imagined that that was going to be your answer to that question, but it just shows that you are a reader and a writer to your core, which is obviously why your books are just so amazing to read. So I that was such a great answer. Before we go, Gregory, I would love to know what impact do you hope that Cress Watercress has on its readers? There's a certain truth, Bianca, that we don't like to tell 
young readers, but that we need to, I think. And that is that not only does sorrow happen, not only does fright happen and anger and frustration to the young, but that having survived it once and having learned that you can survive it doesn't mean that it's never going to happen again. The cycle of emotions is permanent, that having gone through loss once doesn't mean you'll never go through it again. You will go through it again. Having been angry once doesn't mean you've got it out of your system. You will be angry again. The true meaning of growing up is is accepting the cycle of feelings and knowing that you're beginning to have the tools with which to deal with them. And so I, I think that although that message is very understated, it is certainly one of the prime reasons that the book was written in the first place, because I think it is a truth that is rarely shared with children, and I wanted to share it. Yes, and it that just beautifully came across. I think Cress Watercress, is, it's enlightening, it's encouraging, and it's entertaining, and it's amusing. It's so many things. It's honestly, I mean, I think it's going to be the best story I read all year. I truly believe that. <laughs> um, I think I think what's great about it is that, you know, there's going to be kids that it's their reading level. They're going to read it on their own. But I think I think my favorite times will be knowing when families read this book together. Um, I think it's such a great family read aloud. And I can also imagine teachers reading it aloud uh, to the to a class. It's just uh, it's so good. And on that note, Gregory, I just want to thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been so much fun. Bianca, I've had such a good time too. And I wish you all the best. And I hope Crest Watercrest does stay with you as long as I hope it stays with me. Yes. Well, thank you, Gregory. Thanks so much. You take care now. Before we go, here's a very special treat. And it's the first chapter of the audiobook version of Cress Watercress, used with permission from recorded books and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Chapter One The Bare Windows of Home. Mama yanked down her homemade drapes and stuffed them into the carryall. The windows stared squarely out into the newness of how things were now. Mama said, I think it is time. She pulled her apron strings tighter. She didn't look at her children. Is everyone ready? Cress shrugged. Her mouth was dry, her words locked silent. You'll need to carry him, Cress, said Mama. I have my arms full. Can you manage? Kip was disagreeable, all sour milk on salty soap. No go. Don't fuss, said Mama. This is hard enough. Be a good little bunny for Mama. Kip threw himself in the middle of the empty warren. Gone now, the rag carpet that had made the floor soft. When Kip kicked, he hurt his feet. He cried harder. Mama put down the map, the parcels tied in string, the carryall, the valise full of carrots. She picked up her little kip. Since the rocking chair was gone too, she rocked on her heels. Why won't you settle down, Cuddles? Asked Mama. I don't know what to do with you. He wants a stuffed carrot, said Cress. Want Roddy, said Kip. 
I must have packed it and sent it ahead, said Mama. No, said Cress. It's stuck in the hood of his onesie. Look, Kip, here's your carrot. Roddy, said Kip. There were more tears and from more than one pair of eyes. And now we're ready, said Mama. Kip went into the snuggly. Cress grabbed Mama's paw and held on tight. They left their home for the last time. No one bothered to lock the door or to look back at nobody waving goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us on this quest for growing readers. Be sure to check out our show notes. You'll find links to order a copy of Cress Watercress. To see which author or illustrated guests we have coming up and how you can be on our podcast and have your questions answered by authors and illustrators, visit us at thechildrensbookreview.com forward slash the growing readers podcast. If you like this show, remember you can hear it on Apple Podcasts, Chromecast, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. Subscribe to the show to get new episodes as soon as they launch. If you're enjoying our book chats, please leave us a review. And while you're at it, tell a friend to come and have a listen.